We are absolutely thrilled that you are here worshiping with us here at Living Hope, whether you're here in the building or whether you're worshiping online, thank you for worshiping with us today. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as a senior pastor as well as one of our elders here. And uh, like I said, we are thrilled that you're with us to worship this morning. Hopefully when you came in, uh, you picked up a worship guide. On the back of the worship guide is going to be a place where you can take notes as we go through the service. And then also, if you're a first-time guest, we would love to have an opportunity to kind of connect with you. And so as you heard on the video a moment ago, there's a connection card that's in a chair near you. If you don't mind filling that out and drop that in the offering plate a little bit later, that would be a a good thing for us. I wanted to, um, that way we can let you know about what's going on in the life of the church. I wanted to let you all know that... Next Sunday, we are jumping back into the book of Acts. We we have walked through a portion of the book of Acts. We've taken a few weeks off, and now we're going to jump back into the book of Acts. And one way you can tell that is if you have your sermon notes at the very bottom, it says that next week we'll be looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And the reason we put that there is because uh, if you want to kind of follow along, read ahead of time, uh, you don't have to, but you can if you'd like to, and then you'll kind of be ready for uh, the discussion next Sunday. So we'll be picking up in Acts chapter 9 next Sunday. Today, though, we're finishing up a series uh, that we have called Glory to God Through His Church. And over the past few weeks, we've been talking about that very thing. How is it that the church can and should bring glory to God? And last Sunday, uh, we looked at the idea, as Howard mentioned a moment ago, that the Father is glorified whenever we bear much fruit. And the only way that we can bear much fruit is if we abide in Christ, if we are dwelling in our relationship with him, if we're focused on him. And because of that, we can bear much fruit and thereby we can bring glory to the Father. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. And this is a prayer that you and I should be praying for ourselves and for our church family as well, because it's this kind of prayer that will enable us or empower us to abide in Christ and thereby produce much fruit and thereby bring glory to God. And so Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, which is actually in modern-day Turkey. Obviously, it wasn't called Turkey back then, but it's uh, where we would refer to as Turkey today. And and so I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be a Bible near you in a chair uh, around you or underneath you or whatever. You can grab that Bible, use it. And if you don't have a Bible, you need one at the house, feel free to take that with you, and that'll be our gift to you. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So let's look at this together. Here's what Paul says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
So we're looking at this text to see how is it that the church can and should bring glory to God by the way that we live our lives. And so Paul is writing this, as I said, to the Ephesians. And he's already written, as you can tell, because we're in chapter 3, he's already written two chapters worth of, of some of the theology about who God is and how he has saved us from our sin and how he has united us together with other believers into what is re, re, uh, ter, termed as the church. And in these verses, verses 14 through 21, it's kind of divided into two sections. It's only two sentences in the Greek, though. In fact, if you're reading in the ESV, you'll see it's only two sentences as well. And those two sentences are the separation points. So verses 14 through 19 is basically a prayer report that Paul is saying, these, these are the things I am praying for you. So verses 14 through 19 is not necessarily the prayer. Rather, it's saying, this is what I've been praying for you, church. And then he finishes in verses 20 and 21 with a prayer that is what we refer to as a doxology or a praise for God that describes how great his worth really is. And so in that prayer report, as I said in verses 14 through 19, it's one sentence in the Greek, it's 86 words long, and it describes how he's been praying for them. And then in the second section, one sentence, 37 words describing the great worth of God. So I want us to look at verse 14. In verse 14, he doesn't say, this is the prayer I've been praying for you. Rather, by his description of his posture, we know that he's talking about prayer. In verse 14, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, whenever we pray, we may pray in various ways. You may be driving down the highway praying. I, I ask that if that's the case, that you keep your eyes open. You may pray with your eyes closed. You may pray prostrate, pro, I always say that wrong, laying out on the floor. You, you might be kneeling, you might be sitting, you might be standing, you might be raising your hands. But in this scenario, Paul is saying that he's kneeling before the Father. This is interesting because the posture that would be the normal way for Jewish people to pray back then, and actually, if you were to go to the Western Wall in, in, in Jerusalem today, you'd see the same thing, and that is the normal posture for a Jewish person to pray would be standing. And so they would typically stand to pray, but in this scenario, the fact that he's bowing his knees is an indication that there's great passion, there's urgency, and this is an important prayer. And so he's positioning himself before the Father to pray. So we're asking, okay, why is he praying? Look at the beginning of verse 14. He says, for this reason. He says, for this reason, I am bowing my knees. And you're like, okay, well, what reason is that? It's the stuff that comes before verse 14. But it's interesting. It's actually stuff that comes before verse 1. Look up at verse 1. In verse 1, he says the exact same thing. He says, for this reason. And then he kind of gets derailed for a bit before he actually gets back to sharing why it is that he is praying for them. Have you ever in your life, have you ever in your life been praying and been distracted and you're like, how did I even start thinking about where my keys are? I was praying about something else. 
Well, you're actually in good company because Paul at times got distracted too. Now, I will say this. If you read chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, you'll see that he doesn't get distracted by trivial stuff like you and I do. Rather, he gets distracted by starting his prayer and then going, oh my goodness, like God's church, the mystery of his church and salvation that comes to us and the fact that he brings Jews and Gentiles, people who wouldn't normally get along and he brings them into one body. That is amazing to me. And so it's a reminder of why he's praying that he kind of derails for a bit. So when he says, for this reason I pray, you could look at all of chapters 1 and 2, but specifically, I think you could look at verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, which is the verses just prior to verse 1, where he says, for this reason I pray, he is saying, God, you have made us one. First of all, you've made us one in Christ whenever you saved us, but more importantly, you've, uh, not more importantly, sorry, right alongside of that, you've made us one with our fellow brothers and sisters. That God brought Jews and Gentiles together and made them into one church family. The fact that God has brought out his word, his kingdom for all people of all nations around the world is just incredible for Paul to think about. And for this reason, he's praying this prayer. I want us to consider the three different sections of his prayer. In fact, the first three points on your sermon notes are those three subsections of his prayer. What are the three topics he's praying for? The way we can determine what he's praying for is if you were to look back in the Greek, there is a Greek word that is pronounced hina. It's spelled I-N-A, but it's got an H sound on the front of it. Hina, whenever that word is used, he's describing three different phrases that he's praying for, okay? The word hina means in order that, or in the ESV, it may simply be translated the word that. So let's look at the three ways that he's praying. The first way he's praying is, and the way that you and I should pray, we should pray to the Father, strengthen us to live for you. Strengthen us to live for you. That's found in verses 16 through the beginning of verse 17. If you look at the ESV, or whatever translation you may have, in the ESV, the very first word in the English translation is in verse 16 is the word that. Well, that's the same Greek word, hina, and so we see that this is the first phrase that we can seek to understand how it is that he is praying for them and how we should pray for ourselves. It says that, and then he describes according to the riches of your glory. We'll look at that in just a moment, being strengthened. I want you to see, uh, it says he's praying that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He is praying that the strength of God would empower us and strengthen us and dwell within us that we might be empowered to live for his sake and for his glory. The word strengthen here that he's praying for is a passive verb, meaning it's not an active verb. It means that you and I don't take the action of going, I'm going to go pump some weights and get strengthened. Rather, it's saying, I am receiving the strengthening. I'm not doing the work. The Lord is doing that work. And so we pray that he would strengthen us. We don't pray that we would strengthen ourselves. You see, we are powerless on our own. We must rely on his power. The only way that you and I can come close to living for God's sake and his glory and following him in obedience is if we are empowered by him, as Howard showed us with the vacuum that was not plugged in. 
I want us to see in verse 15, sorry, 16, when he says, um, I'm sorry, 17, he says that he's praying that we would be strengthened so that, and the word that there is not the word hina, it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. He's praying that we would be strengthened by God, and the result of that strengthening by God, or the cause of that strengthening by God, is the fact that the Christ is dwelling in us. This word dwell is, is actually a strong word in the Greek. It means to settle down. It doesn't mean to temporarily reside somewhere. Rather, it means to permanently put down roots and be there. And so whenever we trust in Jesus as our Savior, he comes and dwells permanently in our lives. This dwelling, it says, comes through faith. Look at 617. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. The way that we are strengthened to live for God is that Christ himself, his spirit, dwells within us. The only way that he dwells within us is by his work, by his grace, and through our faith in receiving his dwelling in our lives. This is what we refer to as salvation or conversion. The reality is this, that all of us were made to be in God's image, to live for him and to bring him glory. But scripture tells us that because of our sin, we all fall short of his glory. That it's impossible for us to follow him because of our sin. Sin is not just a mistake. Sin is not just an error. Sin is not just something I wish I had done differently or better. Rather, sin is rebellion to a holy, perfect God. And yet he says that Christ would come to dwell within us through faith. I want us to consider um, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It says that our salvation comes to us by God's grace. It's free. He does the work. We don't. And we receive it. The, 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 the method through which we receive it is our faith in Jesus Christ. What is that faith all about? That faith is understanding that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and that he died a death that you and I deserve. He died on the cross, not because he had to, but because he chose to. Like He didn't deserve death, and yet he received death. And then the good news is that three days later he was raised to life. My question for you is, does Christ himself dwell within you? Because if you want the strength and the power of the Lord, then Christ needs to dwell within you. And the only way he dwells within you is if you've trusted in him for salvation through faith. Today, may it be your day of salvation. So the focus of this prayer is that Christ would strengthen us to live for him. It's the reality of, li sorry, it's, it's living in the reality of his power and his continual presence in our life. I want us to look at a couple of phrases that are a part of this strengthening us to live in, in his, his, his power and his strength. Look at the beginning of verse 16. It says that it's according to the riches of his glory. In other words, it's God's greatness it's his glory, and because of that, he has unlimited resources, and he has more than enough power to strengthen us to live for him. Like, he's got more in the bank than we can ever imagine. His, and I don't mean financially. I'm talking about he has so much riches within himself. 
He gives us all the strength that we need to live for him. And it says at the end of verse 16 that he strengthens us with power in our inner being. All too often man looks on the outward. And you might look like you're a Christian and you got it together and he goes to church every Sunday, he preaches, he does this, he does that. And we might look outwardly like we've got it together, but the reality is at times perhaps we're not got anything on the inside. Didn't Christ say something about uh, uh, whitewashed tombs, right? And the reality is the strength we need is not what's on the outside rather the strength that we need is on the inside and whenever he dwells in our lives he empowers us to live for him and we see that it happens only through the work of the holy spirit in our lives you see whenever we come to faith in jesus as our lord and savior the holy spirit dwells within our lives but what he's asking us to do is to not just acknowledge the fact that christ dwells within us or know that he dwells within us Rather, it's about him living in our lives and ruling in our hearts. So my question is, is Christ dwelling in you? I'm not saying just are you a Christian. I'm saying are you a Christian living in the reality that he is on the throne of your life? Paul is saying we should be praying that he would strengthen us, that God would strengthen us to live for him because without that, we can't live for him. Let's look at the second phrase. As I said, the Greek word hina shows up several times. It shows up again in verses 17 through 19. It's the ending of verse 17 going through the beginning of 19. I, I'm going to read it for us. It says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, the word that there again is not hina, but it says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's interesting, I was researching this week and I've got on my computer uh, the ESV and the Greek and it lines it up and in the ESV on my computer it had the word hina, the Greek word hina showing up in verse 17 and then I opened up another Greek New Testament and it wasn't in verse 17. I'm like, where is it? It's in verse 18. Hina shows up in verse 18 that will help us know the second phrase in which Jesus, I mean, Paul is praying for us and that is he's saying that he's praying in order that you may have, look at the beginning of verse 18, in order that you may have full strength to grasp and to know the surpassing knowledge of the love of Christ. So what he's praying for is that he would help us experience his love. So we should be praying to God, God, not only give me the strength that, that, that I would live for you, but along those same lines, Father, would you give me your love that I might experience and know it and live in your love. I want you to see there that in verse 18, the prayer is again containing the word strength, that we would have strength to understand and comprehend his love. The idea is that in that first phrase that we're praying for his power and his strength to help us live for him, it's that power and the strength that helps us live for him that also enables us to experience and understand his love for us. You see, the reality is this. We know, like mentally, intellectually, we know that God loves us, right? But what Paul is praying for is something much more than simply knowing it here, but that we would experience in our lives. 
his love. That we would live in the reality of his love. That we wouldn't just passively say, yeah, no, God is love and God loves me and how incredible is that? Let's go out and watch a football game. No, we want us to see that not only we know that he loves us, but that we experience the richness of his love for us. I'm taking the class, and you've heard me say this the last couple of weeks, experiencing God and, and experiencing God over and over again. We're reminded that obedience comes out of a love relationship with the Lord. And so in this prayer, he's praying that we would experience the love of God. Back in verse 17, he uses two metaphors about how our lives should be focused on the love of God for us. Look at verse 17. He uses an agricultural term, and then he uses an architectural term. He says that we would be rooted. He prays that we would be rooted in love. It's obviously an agricultural term, that, that we would be found, our foundation would be in the vine, if you will. John 15, last week, we talked about how Jesus is the vine, and we're to abide in him. And it says here that we're to abide in Christ and in his love for us. And then he uses this architectural term that he says that, that we are to be grounded. It's this idea of a foundation. I have no idea, maybe another, uh, another car lot, but there's some building going up uh, in Bryan on Highway 6, and they dug a hole that seemed like it was 40 feet deep. I was like, are they putting a basement in or what? Like, they, I don't know anything about building. They took out a bunch of dirt, moved it over, and then lo and behold, guess what? It's back where it was. So I have no idea what they were doing other than putting in the right stuff so they could put the foundation so that the building, whatever it is, could stand whatever is happening, right? We are to have our foundation on the fact that God loves us. How much does he love us? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We must have the foundation of our life grounded and rooted on the love of Christ for us. And then look at verse 18. I, I call it kind of the 4D or the four dimensions of God's love for us. It talks about the height and the, uh, sorry, the breadth, the length, the height and the depth of God's love. In other words, he's saying it's impossible to measure God's love for us. His love is far exceeding anything that we could even imagine. And Paul says, would you somehow seek to understand and comprehend the love of God? And yet, in verse 19, he says he wants us to know the love of God, and that knowing the love of God is actually something that surpasses our knowledge. That's how incredible God's love is for us. Even though we can't fully comprehend God's love, we are to meditate upon it, and we are to live in the fact that he loves us. And our lives should be different because of his love for us. I want us to also notice in verse 18 something. This seems to maybe be out of place, but it's not. Look at verse 18. He says, may we have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. Right in the middle of that verse, it says that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints. What in the world is he talking about? And why does he throw that in? What he's saying is that the only way that we can really grasp and understand and experience the love of God is if we do that in community. He's saying the church plays a vital role in our understanding of God's love for us, the foundation of that love, and then living out in response to his love for us that we love him back and we love one another. 
He highlights that the church must be a part of this equation. He's writing the church. He's saying, guys, this is not individualistically appreciating God's love for you, but rather as a community, as a faith community, would you come together and experience the love of God as a church family? God designed us to best understand his love and to replicate it within the community of faith. How easy is it for us to display the love of God when we're the only person in the room? Now, I know sometimes we maybe struggle with self-worth or we don't appreciate ourselves like we should, but the real challenge is whenever we are around other people and rubbing shoulders with other people, are we demonstrating the love of God as well? So church, he is saying that we have an important role together in answering this prayer and living it out. How is it that the church can understand the love of God in community? Here's some ways that I put down. Whenever we come together and we preach, whenever a sermon is shared, that hopefully in that sermon we're hearing the love of God and we're experiencing it in community, the love of God. Another way that we can experience it in community is by studying and discussing it together. So at our church, we don't just come together and you hear me talk for 30 or 40 minutes, but rather on uh, weeknights, we get together in our hope groups, and in our hope groups, we study and discuss the love of God and the truth of God's word, and, and we challenge each other, sharpen each other, and live out the truth of God's love for us. So that's why we think that hope groups are so vitally important. I would encourage you that if you're not in a hope group, that today you would sign up for a group. You can stop by and ask somebody in the, uh, in, in the lobby and, or whatever that is out there. I can't, foyer, there we go. And we can try to get you signed up for a hope group. Or you can go on our website or you can call the church office this week. But I encourage everybody to be in a hope group so that you can experience God's love together. And then another way that I want to mention is that we can observe the love of God in our brothers and sisters. And the way that we can do that best is within the context of serving if you're not serving on a ministry team, I'd encourage you to sign up for one and then come alongside of other people in our church family and serve together and see the love of Christ come out in one another. In addition to that, jump in a discipleship option. Like in my life, I have a D group, a discipleship group that meets on Monday mornings and we get together and we discuss what God's word has to say to our lives. We challenge each other and encourage each other and we experience the love of Christ among ourselves. Guys, God has called us to experience his love, and he's wired us to do that in a relational kind of capacity within the life of the local church. You see, relational love with others must always be grounded and rooted in Christ's love for us and a response to his love for us that we love others. You see, relational love is absolutely crucial to the viability and ministry of the local church. We must love one another. You see, knowing God's love is more than a head knowledge of God's love. It's an experiential kind of thing where we're experiencing his love for us and we are changing and living our lives accordingly. I do want to mention a couple of ditches to avoid when it comes to experiencing God and his love. A couple of ditches to avoid. Here's the first one. 
One, one ditch is experiential abuse. And what I mean by that is, if we're not careful, we can make everything about experiences and we don't filter it through God's word. We can turn to kind of mysticism and we can turn to heresy. But the reality is this, that our experiences, which we can experience the love of God in them, our experiences must always be centered and grounded on God's word. And every experience we have must be understood through the lens of scripture. So be careful that we don't abuse experiences. At the same time, the other ditch is the opposite extreme, and that is experiential avoidance. It's this idea that I'm going to, experience, I'm going to avoid the Spirit of God, I'm going to avoid the experiences of God, and it turns into a cold, dead orthodoxy. We need to experience the love of Christ, we need to experience God, and we must be careful to keep it centered within the foundation of His love for us and what His Word teaches us. That's one of the many reasons why we should be studying God's Word. Because if we're not careful, we don't study God's Word, and we just get to hope group, and we go, life really stinks for me right now. And somebody goes, you know, have you ever tried this or that? And we turn into Dr. Phil. I don't know if Dr. Phil's still on the air or not. We turn into some kind of self-help person. No, the reality is when we get in hope group, we discuss life's difficulties. The answers that we give each other should be grounded in the Word of God and lived out in an experiential kind of way. So what Paul is praying for is not only that we would have the strength of God within us to live for him, but that we would also experience God's love for us. And then the last one is this. You're like, there's four things on there. I promise it's the last thing we're praying for, and that is fill us with all your fullness. The word hena shows up again in verse 19. In fact, 19 begins with that. Or actually, the ending of 19 begins with that. It says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The last prayer piece that Paul gives us would be that we would be filled with all of God's fullness. You're like, how is that even possible? I, I'm a human. I'm not God. How can I be filled with all of God's fullness? Let me use this as an illustration. Suppose we go down to South Padre, and we've got a jar, and we're like, we're going to get some ocean or gulf water in the jar. We bend down, we put the jar in the water, and it very quickly fills up, right? And we hold the jar up, and the jar is full of the fullness of the Gulf of Mexico, but the reality is all of the Gulf of Mexico is not in that single jar, is it? But what we have in the, in the jar, hopefully, is not sludge and oil and slime. Hopefully, it is water, and, and it's ocean water, right? Okay, so you dip that jar in there, you come out with the fullness of the ocean inside the jar. Whenever you are a follower of Jesus, our lives get dipped into Jesus. Jesus dwells within us. He is fully God. The fullness of the deity is within him, and as a result of that, his Fullness in our lives impacts how we live our life. I want us to look at Colossians chapter 2. It might do a better job of what I tried to do. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It talks about the fullness of the deity dwelling within Jesus and then how he is to dwell within us. Paul also wrote this to the church in Colossae. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this, For in him, talking about Jesus, for in him the whole fullness, the same words here, the whole fullness 
of deity dwells bodily. And then verse 10 says, and you have been filled in him, talking about Jesus, who is the head of all rule and authority. So whenever the spirit of Christ dwells within us, then the fullness of God dwells within us, and we need to live in that reality. This is kind of a conclusion or a summary request of the first two. The first one was that we would be strengthened to live for Christ as Christ dwells in us. The second is that we would experience the love of God within our lives. And then the third one is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, we are to be filled with the fullness of God, meaning we experience his presence, his power, his life, his love within us. And whenever we are filled with his fullness, we begin to exhibit the, the characteristics and virtues and the spiritual fruit that he desires for us to produce. The fruit that he produces within us. As we think for just a moment about dwelling God's fullness dwelling somewhere. Think back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, where did God dwell? What was the thought process? That God would dwell where? He would dwell in the, the tabernacle and that he would dwell in the temple. But then we fast forward to the New Testament and where does he dwell? He dwells in our hearts. That we are now the holy dwelling place of the Lord. And if we are filled with all of his fullness, then we will reflect the holy habitation that we are to be. Meaning that we will throw off the old man and we will put on the new man. That we are made new in Christ. That as we are filled by him, we experience his power, we experience his love. And then you can flip it as we experience his power and his love, we are filled with the fullness of God. See, the reality is whenever we trust in Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But sometimes we go through life not remembering or living out the reality that he has filled us. And what Paul is calling us to is to experience the fullness of Christ within us that we might live for his glory. So he finishes with a doxology. Verses 20 and 21 are a doxology or, or, or a praise of God for who he is. And so at the bottom of your notes, you see that we are to say to God, to you be glory forever and ever. Here's what it says. After he prays those three things, he sums it up by saying, now to him, to God, to Christ, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. There's that power within us again, Christ dwelling within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Again, it's according to his power. We, we see here a description of who God is. God is holy and worthy of worship. He is more than able to answer our prayers. It says that he's far more abundantly able to do this than we can ask, think, or imagine. That, that phrase, far more abundantly, is actually one word in the Greek, which means quite beyond all measure. God has capacity that far exceeds our capacity to ask. He has greater capacity to answer our prayers than we have 
the capacity to ask. He is far more abundantly. This is a bold prayer that Paul prays on behalf of the Ephesians and that we should be praying as well, but Christ is more than able to answer that prayer. And then we see that all of this is for his glory. It says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And how long is that glory to last? It says, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Perhaps you see that last word, amen. You're like, oh yeah, it's a prayer. It's supposed to end with amen. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. Before you hit send, you say amen. Like, that's the closing word. You know the word amen means more than just end of prayer, right? Amen is a strong word that says, so be it, or let it be so. And so it's fitting that when in a preaching environment, if you hear something that God's word declares, that you say out loud, amen. You're like, that seems so weird. Like, Alan's not praying. Why would I say amen in the middle of the sermon? Because you're not saying amen to the end of a prayer. You're saying amen to God's word being fulfilled and lived out in our lives. So he says, may he be glorified. My challenge to us is that we would have this kind of vision of God that we find in this doxology, that God is far greater than anything we could ask, think, or imagine. What's going on in your life that you're praying for? What are you praying for you and your family? What are you praying for our church family? God is more than capable to answer those prayers. Here are three things, or actually, uh, yeah, there's three things I want to share with you here. The first thing we see is that we are powerless without God, and we can't do anything without his strength. So my question for you to consider is this. Are you praying desperate prayers? See, we can't do this on our own. To say, God, we need your strength and we need your power means we are desperate. When's the last time that you pleaded for God to give you his power to live your life for him? Let's pray desperate prayers. The second thing I want you to consider is that we've seen that we're called to experience God's love for us. And that's what drives us to live for him. We've also seen that Paul says it's impossible for us to fully grasp and understand the love of God. And yet we see that we should spend time meditating and trying to understand and experience the love of God. So my question for you is, when's the last time you sat in the presence of God and just thanked him for his love for you and allowed him to experientially pour his love out on you? And then the third thing, we're to pray to be filled with the fullness of God. But all too often, we're satisfied with being near God, being near Jesus, when we should only be satisfied or content with being filled with him. So my question is, are you praying for him to completely fill you? He's more than capable, more than able to answer our prayers. My question is, are we praying to him in that reality? I'm going to lead us in prayer. After the prayer is over with, there's going to be some guys that are going to be passing the offering place. That's where you can drop your offering if you came prepared to give and or your connection card, prayer request cards, things like that. 
And then we're going to spend some time singing a song or two. And as we do, I'll be available here in the front if you'd like to come and pray with me. The altar will be available for you to pray there. Would we maybe spend some time in desperate prayer, crying out to the Lord who is more than able to answer our prayers, knowing that he is faithful to do so. Let me pray for us.